Yesterday we talked about uh, risking our hearts, and I want us to go away and try and think through what we remember. As you sat and talked last night, as your pastor and I talked last night for a while, we remember those talks, those moments, the gifts of our time. And if there's one of you that, in the stillness of last evening, you said, Lord, I just, in my mind right now, reaffirm that beginning. You know, I don't know about you, but there have come times in my life, a couple of years ago, I went down in an airplane in Alaska, and I remember my close friend said to me, pull your straps tight. When the prop went out, and the plane started down, and I tightened those straps down, I thought of Denise, and I thought of those kids, and, and on the headset, I was sitting next to him in a small bush plane, he said, when the plane hits, if you have the ability, pop the door open and roll out and just keep rolling till you stop. You know, my last thoughts as we were coming down from about 3,500 feet, it's not like we were just going down like this. It was a slow, hard turn, but you could just feel yourself going down to props turning and firing, but there was no power to the engine. And I wasn't ready to unloose the straps and pop the door open and go rolling. And you know what I said? I said, Lord... If I never meant it before, I mean it right now. <laughs> I'm trusting you as my Lord and Savior. When your heart's pounding real hard, and you're thinking that, because I've come up on crash scenes in Alaska where they were killed. And when that plane hit and bounced, was turning sideways, and I forced that door open, was fighting with those straps. I thought to myself, I'm going to have another chance. When we have the opportunity to sit down and think through the things that really matter in a couple of days like this, right beginnings are everything. They direct our hearts and allow us to say, all right now, God, I'm going to, I'm going to take the resources and the lifestyle and the mind that you have given me, and I'm going to spend my life for you, best I know how. But you know, guys, I'd open this morning with saying three things to you when it comes to vision. At 52 years of age, 31 years of marriage, and three kids, I'm at a place where I trust myself less than I ever have. If I could say something to you today to say, Kirk, what are you thinking about what we're thinking in regard to risking our hearts and risking our leadership as we go into this thing called vision? You see, vision is what you see, feel, and hear as you look into your future. I would say, trust yourself less. I trust myself less than I ever did. There isn't any good thing in me. If there is any good thing in me, it is by the grace of God, it's Him. Uh, so therefore, number two, I trust him more. As I'm getting older, I'm not wanting, you know, when I started in life and ministry and marriage and kids and all that stuff, as a leader, you know, we talk about heart and leadership, I used to think that leadership was taking charge and telling people what to do. And I have found that it's not that, it's, it's that I don't trust myself. Number two, I trust him more. So I'm trying to help guide people with what I think he thinks. And that puts a whole new spin on how you talk to people. 
Best I know how, this is what I think the Lord thinks. I wish the door had opened and he'd come walking in. And like John the Baptist, I could decrease so that he could increase. I just wish he could walk in and I could say, I am so glad you're here. I've been stumbling along, Lord. I trust him more. Third, I believe if the Lord was here, he would add value to people. I just find in my journey, I hear people say to me a lot that I have the gift of encouragement. I'm not so sure. I think I've just bought in a long time ago to the value of people. I, I, I ask the Lord to help me see this world like he sees it. And when I see the world, I see the world hurting. Even when it's arrogant, even when it seems self-sufficient, even when it seems to, to throw rocks at him. You know, I find under the surface with men... Great insecurity. Because at best, we know that in us is no good thing, and with God, without God, we're nothing. And we know that He's everything. And if He was here, He'd be easy. He'd sit around and talk. He'd ask you some tough questions. And as we set the stage this morning, I think He'd look at you and ask you just what your life is about. What's your vision for the future? What do you see, feel, and hear? as you look to the days ahead. Last night in the second session, we talked about yet to do that, you have to stay in a place of re-surrender. You have to be willing to listen to God. And then you have to get ready to make a promise and keep it. I used to think my dreams were the greatest dreams I ever dreamed, you know, uh, growing up in that trailer park in Miami and watching my father work so hard I've been taking care of my mom and dad for these last 13 years. As I told you, mom had early onset Parkinson's, 40 years old. She died July the 8th, 2004, and my home had fallen down. And Fourth of July weekend, fractured her elbow. She had so many fractures over the years, I was so upset because I was the guy barbecuing. And she was standing there, and she had blaffered spasms of the eyes where the eye sockets would charley horse for about 20 years. Imagine what that feels like every five minutes. And she'd reach up and try and stop the spasming, and she would push her eyes open. And when she did, she lost her balance, flew over. I tried to reach her. She broke her elbow. So, you know, all, I don't know, 90 pounds of her, I picked her up, and we took her to the hospital, and they put some screws and pins in. And, and on Tuesday before the 8th that year, uh, eighth, the 4th of July was, uh, was coming up on a Thursday. And so uh, my daughter, who's the nurse practitioner, was home, and... And my mother said, uh, or Ashley said, Grandma, your elbow's leaking. And she unwrapped it, had an infection. She'd gotten staph in the hospital. And so the doctors came out on Sunday morning, and I thought they were going to say we're going to give her an aggressive treatment. She, we took her Saturday, and, and uh, I'll never forget the orthopedic surgeon walked out, a Jewish gentleman, and he said to us, uh, the staph is attached to all the metal in her body. The minute he said that, my father and I were standing there. All the metal in her body, hips and pins and screws and things over all those years of Parkinson's. He said, we'll have to take all the metal out. Now here's my dad. He's a coal miner, steel mill worker, blue collar worker, not an intellectual type. And he's standing there 50 years and three or four months of marriage. And this doctor says, we're going we're to attempt to take all the metal out. But the first thing we've got to do, he says, is take her arm. And I watched my big old dad standing there, and he didn't understand the metal out of her. 
but he understood that I've got to start by taking her arm. Now, you watch somebody with Parkinson's for uh, 30 plus years, and it's your mom. And my mom was one of those that we all wish we had. And I'm standing there and I'm thinking, I want to punch this guy. And the best way he knew how, he was just a little short guy, he said, uh, I could see the look on his face. He hated telling us that. But he was a surgeon. He was there to treat her. I said, Doctor, if you would give me a minute with my dad. And I took my dad over into the waiting room, and he looked at me, my father, how that role begins to shift. He said, what does that mean? I hated what I was about to say to my father. I looked at him, and I said, Dad, I'm not going to let him take Mom's arm. She's been through enough. It's time to let her go. And I'll never forget, he stood up straight, and he's a worn-out construction worker, hips worn out, shoulders, everything on him's worn out. He stood up as straight as he could, and he said, give me a minute with your mom. Went in there and knelt over, and he's crying. I've only seen my dad cry twice. He's crying. He told my mom what the doctor said. And my mom reaches up and pats him on the face with the other shaking Parkinson's, you know. Pats, her, pats him on the face. Here's what she said. We're at the door. My brother and I, all of us, our wives, we're peeping in at my dad and mom. Last kind of talk, kind of thing. You thought we were 10, all their snot running out our nose. My mother patted my dad on the face. Here's what, he, here's what she said. She said, Bob, it's okay. She's comforting him. It's okay, Bob. God put me on this earth for one reason, to help you know him. My mother's the first person in five generations that cared about a man like my father, shared with him Christ, coming out of the Korean War. Now think about that. Your whole life, 74 years of meals, 74 Christmases, 74 years with your kids, work at the church all over, all that, she says, God put me on this earth for one reason, Bob, to help you know him. Man, did they love each other. I often think to myself, how do I know what love looks like so I can love my wife that way? I can't do it because I sought my mom and dad. I don't have it in me. I say to God all the time, help me have a little bit of that Billy Graham. I sat with Ruth last night dead in that casket. She never looked more beautiful. When you, when you look into your future, you're not going to hit what you don't see and feel and hear. That's why it's important to re-surrender, listen to God, and get ready to make the promises necessary for you to do that. See, you can see, feel, and hear something, but if you're not ready to make the promise, you just see, feel, and hear it. And you say, why is that? Because, guys, it's not in us to do. What's in us, because of the fallen nature of our flesh, is to kill, steal, and destroy it's just in this. It's, there's no good thing in it, even when we have the right beginning. That's why one day we look forward to laying this thing down, and it fights to lay down, to die. It doesn't want to. We fight for air. We fight the cancer. We fight the issues. But Paul says it's this war that we're in. And so we come together as a group of men, and we say then, then, then how do I build that kind of house, that life? 
Got to have the right beginning. God, if I never meant it before, this plane's going down. I love my Lord with all my heart. I love my wife unconditionally. I will love my kids to my last breath. Till you think about this is your last breath, jump out the door and start rolling. When I jumped out that door and started rolling, I will assure you, I thought to myself, oh God, don't let me die. Because I love you and I still got a wife and kids I got to get through school. But if I didn't mean it, I mean it now. My father fights with that since my mother died. He doesn't think he loved her like he should. The big problem I'm having with him and his life sitting in my basement now is, is that when I go down there and I look at him slumped, he remembers all the bad. And I look at him and say, Dad, please stop. Son, I lay in the bed at night. I can't sleep. I think of all the times I yelled at her. I think of all the places I didn't take her. I think of all the times I was selfish and made her cook when she was so tired she couldn't stand up. And this is what he says. Certainly God's not going to let me into heaven. I say, Dad, Satan is trying to destroy you in these last years. Now let me tell you what I saw. Never saw anybody love their wife like you. And I go through all the things that I saw as a kid. Don't think your children aren't watching. Did I see the bad? Of course I did. But you know, I'm supposed to be like my Savior. He says when He forgives your sins, they're separated as far as the east is from the west. He will not dredge them up again. It's not going to happen. You're not going to stand in front of Him and say, here's the big screen, let me show you everything you did wrong. You're going to give an account for what your gifts and skills were used for or not used for, but He's not bringing them. You're going to say, but Lord, are we going to talk about all that mess? He's going to look at you and say, what mess? Did you see the cross? That's where the mess was. But I am going to talk to you about what you did, and here's vision responsibility and sacrifice. As far as men goes, one day I'll do my dad's funeral. And you know what I'll say about him? He was a man of vision because he was a man marked by responsibility and sacrifice. See, when you see, feel, and hear a life that's marked by faith in Christ, I'll tell you what, what life is. It's a life of responsibility and sacrifice. I was talking to one of you today and you said, you know, it was good that we talked about tithing, giving to the church, stewardship. I've never have quite understood why that's kind of a not talked about topic. You know, I will assure you that if I don't make the house payment, my wife will want to talk about it. <laughs> if there are any of you that ever got a late notice on your house payment and didn't know that it was late, come on. Come home and your wife says, that light payment's due. Oh, really? I thought we'd get a freebie this month. <laughs> Do you know the Bible says that if a man doesn't provide for his own house, he's worse than a, an infidel, a man that does not know God? Worse than that. If he doesn't provide for his own house. Talk about God's values. You make a promise to your wife and kids and you don't keep it, you're worse than a man that doesn't know God, is what the Scripture says. So help me understand that a man that doesn't provide for his house, God's house, what's that make him? And I'm here to tell you, if, when a man grows up is when a man makes the house payment and the light payment and the water payment and everything, not complaining. 
You know, you, you ask, you get down on your knee, honey, would you marry me and put the ring on her finger? My father said that on the night, Dad, I need your blessing. You and Mom, I want to marry Denise. My father looked at me and said, your life's about to change. I thought he meant honeymoon and sex and everything, you know. And, <laughs> you guys laughing about it. You've been there. <laughs> I'll tell you what it is. It's work. You take on that girl. You make the promise to her. You look at her eyes and say, as the, as, the, as the reverend or whoever stands in front of you goes, Kirk, will you take this woman that you hold by the hand to be your lawfully wedded wife? Never forget my pastor when he said that. He said, you look at me. I was so nervous. I'm looking at Denise. He said, would you look at me, please? The guy that raised me, I turned and I looked at him and he said, will you take Denise, the girl that you're holding by the hand, to be your lawfully wedded wife? Yes, sir. Now let me tell you before you say what that means. Will you honor her above all others? Will you provide for her? Will you keep yourself only unto her? In sickness and health, for better, for worse? Now listen to me, for as long as you both will live. Now before you make that promise, you need to understand this is an institution that God ordained. So when you make the promise, you're making it to him, and you're making it to her. Now, Kirk, if you would, look at Denise and tell me what you say. All of at once, I felt something set down on my shoulders, and it wasn't honeymoon and sex, and it was responsibility set down on my shoulders. And it was probably five or six years before I grew up. I was one of those guys, you know, out on a golf course, smoking a cigar, saying, these women, they're always spending all your money. <laughs> you know, uh, the golf course on Friday afternoons is just a complaint place for guys that don't grow up. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about the same stuff. And one day I was out there, four or five years into it, I was in the club. And it hit me, we're talking about my wife. I'm talking about the other guy's wives. And I thought, how immature. How immature. Because you see, a man that's a man's man is marked by responsibility that's driven out of a willing heart. We'll see that in the scripture in a second. So vision is what you see, feel, and hear. And when you get under the load and you stand a little straighter and taller because somebody's counting on you. I don't know whether you like that or not. Some men run from it. But I like having responsibility sit down on my shoulders. Somebody needs me. That's vision. And when it comes to the church, man, you guys are, are overrun by people. Three services, I think, and... Four services right now. You ought to already be in a new place. City against you. The, you know, my heavens, all that San Francisco. That's just not that they're complacent. They're anti-God, and and you're and you're you have that you have you have a, a mission and a and a church vision that I believe San Francisco could be reached, but you're out of space and parking, and nobody wants you, and trying to believe God for a miracle, and Satan is standing against you, and. Our hearts ought to be united to say, how badly does God want to redeem San Francisco? He gave His Son to die on the cross. 
But then there comes that offering plate again. I have a problem with one out of ten. I just don't understand it. It's, it's kind of like the guy that's married that says, I'm glad for the sex, but I don't want to make the house payment. Where does that come from? Where are men of responsibility? Your wife, my heavens, many of you married, is sitting next to you watching what you're doing. Where are men, Christian men? Your children are watching you. Oh, we love the Lord. Put our hands up, sing that song, cry. But that offering, that's something else. Men of responsibility. And you really want to mark a man's heart in regard to vision. It's not what you're responsible for. It's what you sacrifice for. When was the last time you saw real sacrifice? You know what sacrifice is? Giving up something you love for something you love more. What have you given up for the kingdom from something you love to something you should love more? I mean, real sacrifice costs you something. I thought one night I was speaking at a church on this topic, and when I got done, and you know, people patted me on the back and said, way to go, Kirk. And I went out there and got in my Lexus 460. Went back to Atlanta, to my house on the golf course. My wife said, how'd it go? I said, they said I did a great job. We raised a lot of money. And then all of a sudden, the last November, the Lord comes along and says, hey, Franklin, why don't you give a devotion? And they say, hey, would you come to work? And, and all of a sudden, I'm going, now it's nice they asked me, but my spirit's unsettled. And I said, oh, no, God's going to unsettle me. And Franklin says, I'm going to pay you half of what you make now. He asked me, he said, what do you make? I told him, he said, I'll pay you about half. <laughs> Now let me ask you a question. Does that sound like a career move for you? <laughs> I'll pay you about half. You know, in the nonprofit world, it's not negotiable. It's not negotiable. Pastor Terry don't get to come in and say, well, they're going to give them 6% this year. And, well, can we have another meeting? Can we negotiate? We don't do that. And so I go home. My wife says, what did, you, what did he say? I said, half pay. <laughs> That's a man's answer, isn't it? You know, it's so funny. My wife's so much deep, so much deeper than I am. And she goes, "Is that all he said?" <laughs> That's all I could see. You know, reality, guys, this morning I got up early and I was reading a little scripture getting ready for today. And one of the first things I needed was my house appraisal coming from Atlanta from a guy who just had appraisal. Market in Atlanta is like Florida, do not resuscitate. <laughs> and I'm saying, oh God, let this be a good appraisal. Let it be a good appraisal. I need a tool to help me sell that house because we're in a course correction. That was this morning's life. Let me tell you why. I have the same bills. I make half the pay. And so long about last April, I'm on my knees, and my heart is attached to my kids. I've seen the little children in Sudan. And I have America's sins. I care, but I don't care enough to sacrifice. In fact, I feel better because I care about myself. I'm a good guy. But when was the last time I did? It was a test for me. 
because John Maxwell, as your pastor said, is the leadership guy. I walked with his entourage. I had president's box tickets to the Falcons. I mean, I had a country club membership to the country club of the South. I just got the dadgum new lease on the 460. <laughs> Went in and sat down with John Maxwell. John looked at me and he said, Kirk, I believe you ought to stay. He said, I think you've sacrificed a lot for ministry. You've built a great team here. I need you. See, I was looking for him to say, you know, Kirk, I think you ought to go there. I know you. This is your gig. God's prepared you. I've tried to raise you as a leader. I need you to go. John said, stay. So I had me and John on my side. <laughs> That's a pretty formidable argument with your family. See, that's who I really live in front of, my family. And that dadgum God wouldn't let me alone. More that I'd say, God, what do you want me to do? He'd say, how many times do I have to squeeze my heart again? I'd say, oh, please let it be indigestion or something. <laughs> and that dadgum Franklin Graham, on Friday before May 1st, my cell phone rings. And I pick up the phone and I said, uh, well, it was January 24th before May 1st. I looked down, I just got off the road from being at a church. I said, Franklin Graham, I said, oh, leave me alone. I've already, I turned him down. I'll tell you guys, I turned him down before Christmas. Two days before Christmas, I turned him down. I said, I can't get peace. You're right, I couldn't get peace. I wasn't willing to surrender to the, re-surrender. I looked down, I said, oh, man. I said, hello. My wife was behind me. I'm in the bathroom, just set down my suitcase. Frank goes, Kirk? I said, Franklin, would you leave me alone? <laughs> Here's what he said. He said, Kirk, he said, I don't know about you, but I just can't get peace as to why God crossed our paths. Come help me lead Samaritan's Purse. And like the day I had the right beginning, I just, it was time for me to pray and invite Christ into my heart. It just... You know, I want a guy, some of, I've heard stories that guys get, I don't ever think the Lord drags you screaming and kicking. He invites you. Come unto me, all ye that labor and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. My yoke is easy, my burden's light. The cross is already done, guys. And just like that moment, the Holy Spirit went through me and I said, okay, Franklin. He said, okay, what? I said, okay. And I turned and my wife was crying and she said it was about time. <laughs> now can I tell you one more time? Half the pay. I want to tell you I'm happier right now than I've ever been in my life. I go from a 460 Lexus to I'm, by, I'm driving a pickup truck. I'm in Boone, remember. I say to my son all the time, he'll say, how you doing, Dad? I said, Dad, gum, I pulled in the lot today and saw that silver 460 Lexus. <laughs> he'll say, don't forget they're starving over here, Pops. Vision is marked by responsibility and sacrifice. And I think sometimes we just kind of turn our eye. We care. In fact, don't you, you hear, the, hear me talk about this, you know, or, or, you, or you, don't you feel better about yourself because you care? What are you going to do about it? Are you going to be responsible and act? Or are you going to sacrifice? 
You know, the funny thing about your heart is your heart's not marked by responsibility. It's marked by going beyond responsibility and the things you sacrifice for. You know, one of my favorite new Verizon, uh, I think it's Verizon uh, phone commercials, is the guy that's got the four phones, you know, and he goes, hey, here's for my numero uno. You know, and then his little daughter, oh, gee, thanks, Dad. And he walks up to his wife, you know, that's doing kind of a terrible robotic dance or something. He goes, here, I got a phone for you, you know. And she, oh, you're my numero uno. And then the little boy, oh, gee, thanks. And he walks outside, and the guy goes, save the best for numero uno. And there's all the, you know, Verizon guys out there. That's the way the world watches us. Men mark, marked by responsibility to God and to their families. But you really want to see a guy's heart light up. And I just find that most men today don't light up anymore. They don't go on the adventure. You know, you think about it. I took half the pay, and I've been on, I think, just about every continent in the world in the last uh, six months. Who would have thought? I climb on planes that say Samaritan's Purse. I walk into meetings, and there sits Billy Graham. You say, but you are driving a Ford pickup truck. Yeah. And I get in it and I say, I cannot believe God's letting me see and feel and hear the stuff he's letting me see, feel, and hear. You never get to go on the adventure if you don't say, I'm going to grow up and be a man of responsibility, and then I'm going to let people see where my heart's at by the things I sacrifice for. Correct? You say, how do you get there? Well, you again, go to older guys, see the role model in Scripture and in life, and as Paul said, as I am an imitator of Christ, follow in my footsteps. Now, I'm sure that's why Paul talks so much about the junk in his life. Because he said, you're going to see me mess up, but best I can, I'm going to follow Christ. Listen, if there was ever a guy that ought to pat himself on the back, it was me. I went in the highest rabbinical schools there were. But at the same time, I was the persecutor of the early church, the man that stood there when they stoned Stephen. There was a day when I got knocked down off my horse. A blinding light shone round about me, and I said, Lord, Lord, who are you? And he said, I am the man you persecute. And Paul surrendered his heart to him, and that became his right beginning. And until the day in Jerusalem where they say, he was beheaded. I went down in that damp, cold, small space. I would imagine on that last night he thought to himself, have you decided yet why I, why I crossed your path? I don't think that he went screaming and kicking to that place where they beheaded him. I think he said, I have fought a good fight. I have finished the course. He was a man of responsibility and sacrifice. So if you have a Bible, look with me in 1 Chronicles 28 and 29. I'm going to share with you three principles and a thought. Because this thing's about taking risks. And I couldn't help, last night I was waking up a little bit, and then this morning I got up early, I confiscated some Phil's coffee and made it down in the room. And, uh, and I was sitting there and I was thinking in the stillness of the morning, this, the theme of this, uh, of this uh, weekend is uh, risk. And I ask myself why God brought me. You know, I was standing back in the back a minute ago praying, and Kyung asked me to stand in the light. I told him I couldn't. I'm a, I move around a bit. 
I'm pressed is my issue. I may never see you again. I stood over there and I looked out at the trees and I thought, what if I never saw you again this side of heaven? God, what do you want me to say to him? My mother said to me on the night before she died on the 8th, I was giving her morphine. We were staying around the clock with her. The pain got so great. And I went to give her morphine and she kind of turned her head and I got down close to her face and I said, what is it, mom? Her temperature was up and the staff had taken over her body. And I got close and she struggled to open her eyes. The morphine had such a grip on her. Here's what she said to me. She said, I've taken care of you all your life. You do that now for our family, for me. Next morning, I headed to Starbucks. My wife took over. I stand in there in line. I got the call. It was my wife's birthday, the 8th. She was singing it as well with your soul to my mom. And the present that my God gave my wife on her birthday was she was holding her hand when he took her into heaven. I think about the kind of woman that my wife is that God chose her, not me. A life of responsibility and a life of sacrifice for her family and for her Lord. How do you do that? If this was my last time with you, I'd say until Christ captures your heart. You can't give him a piece of it. You can't go out of here and say, okay, I'll surrender. It's either surrender it all or you don't surrender anything. You don't come to salvation and say, well, I want that white right beginning, but I'm, I'm, you know, I don't like repentance. Listen, if you don't believe you're a sinner, you can't have a right beginning. If you come and say, I want Christ, but I'm not sorry for my sins. Listen, I need Christ because I am sorry for my sins. Miserable guy that I am. And when I say, Lord, I'm so sorry for my sins. I believe you were God's son. You died on the cross for me. You suffered death and hell and you rose from the dead. Pastor Terry and I were talking last night. It's hard for us as as teachers because of our hearts. He and I kind of have similar tender hearts. It's hard to say that people are going to die and go to a, a place called hell. It's all the way through the scripture. I have to believe in a real hell because I believe in a real heaven. Sometimes this life feels like hell. But I've seen people burn to death and I've thought if... God, if that is a real place of judgment, my God, how do I help people not go there? What's in your heart? We care, but I'm not so sure we care enough to sacrifice. David had lived a long life. He's my kind of guy because he he did good and he messed up. And he did good again. Listen, we're all going to do it. Until the day we lay down these bodies, we're going to do good and mess up and do good and mess up. The deal I'm glad about in God's economy was is that it wasn't the day of writing the scripture where all my stuff's for everybody to read. So we read all this stuff about David, and he had a family like many of you guys have families. He has a son by the name of Solomon. There came a day when God took David's dream away. You know, there's going to come a day when somebody's going to replace Pastor Terry and me, and I'm so grateful for Kyung and the work that he's put together in this men's weekend, the effort van loaded up yesterday so we could enjoy this team members this worship David had his dream taken away did you ever have a dream taken away from you 
You know, I thought when I was real young that you got your dreams. I watched my dad have no dream. His dream was to be a high school football coach. Do you know, I never knew that until I was long after I grew up. I sat down one night, dad building bridges down there, providing for his family, getting burned up in the sun. I said, dad, did you ever have a dream? And this big old steel mill worker turns and looks at me and he says, just want to be a high school football coach. How come you didn't? Never could quite figure out how to get there. Son didn't have an education. I thought, that's sad. High school football coach. David had the dream of building the temple. He wanted people to know the God that he knew. You know, that's got to be the coolest thing about Cornerstone. Who can't you invite? You know, I go in there some days and I go, I wish I knew everybody was here. There's some stories. It's a place where people can come on Sunday and be unthreatened. And they can have the truth of the Word of God in a very relevant way. Just get a little edge into their life and create a conversation and a relationship and, and help people have a right beginning. And how cool is San Francisco? We're all lost. And when we get done, you know, Boone has Conrad's coffee. You ought to try that nastiness. <laughs> Problem in Boone is they think it's good. We don't even have a Dunkin' Donut. If we had a Dunkin' Donut, you know, at least a Dunkin' Donut. I come to San Francisco and I, I go, that gummit, there's another Pete's. I come down on my motorcycle and every stoplight, Starbucks, Starbucks. I come down here, we got 40 pounds of Phil's coffee. <laughs> David had this dream of, of people meeting the God that he had. You know what? I just love coming here because I'm telling you about the God that I have. So cool. Some guys came up to the table this morning where I was eating breakfast. Kind of, can I sit here? I said, sit down. Let's talk. I'm giving them Africa stories. Do you know how cool it is when people want to sit with you? You know, I was a kid in school. Nobody wanted to sit with me. Little skinny kid, big pimples all over my face. <laughs> Nobody wanted to sit with me. I used to hope somebody wanted to sit with me. My dad made me cut my hair military. In the 70s, that was not a cool thing. <laughs> and so you know what I learned to do growing up to cover up my insecurity? I fought. You made some comment to me, I drilled you. But I still sat there alone. We find in our lives that we go through life with dreams when we really want to connect and, and have respect and honor. You know what respect is? Respect is when your colleagues think you do something, your wife and kids think you do something that matters. And honor is when you come through the other side and know you did a good job. And God says, well done, thy good and faithful servant. David had a dream and he said, you've got to meet this God that I know. You've got to. It's not preaching to people, it's engaging people with a God that he is the coolest. And so God said, David, I can't let you build the temple. You've been a fighter, man of war. You've got blood on your hands. And David must have thought, I guess this is how I'm going to end. He said, hold on, wait. You have a son, don't you? And that's what I've learned about my kids. I wish Matt was here today. At some point I have to come back because I've got to bring Matt. You've got to see this kid with, I showed Terry. Curly hair, you know, thick, about out like this. Brown hair. I want him to stand in here so I can say, 
Let me decrease so he can increase. David said, Solomon is going to build the temple. What do you think about that, Pop? And David went, no way. You're going to use my son. Let me tell you what's at risk. It's not just your life. It's everybody that's watching you. Everybody watching you. Especially those of you who had kids. And David had to do it pretty good because along comes his son and he gets assigned the project. And so here's his son. One day they gather the nation of Israel together. Big group. They put the nation in the back, the leaders in the middle, and I'm sure Solomon's in the front. He had to be. He's leading the project. It's very cool. The 28th chapter in the second verse, the scripture says, oh, this is not going to work. I need my glasses over here. You know, verse 1, he summons, what's it say, uh, 28, 1 Chronicles 28, old books of the Bible. You got a table of contents in the front. Use them. Even if you're new to the Bible, you know, what I used to do when I was a new Christian was I'd see everybody else find their place, and so I felt bad, so I'd just kind of turn like I found it and cover the top, and, <laughs> and I'd look around, uh, you know, somebody would say, oh, you found it, I got it, you know, and I didn't know where I was. Old books of the Bible, table of contents in the front, 1 Chronicles 28, David summoned all the officials of Israel to assemble at Jerusalem, the officers over the tribes, the commanders, this was all the, the groups of people. You go down there in verse number 2, King David stood to his feet. Now here, remember yesterday we talked about heart and we risking it, we talk about leadership, risking it, and now we talk about vision, risking it. King David rose to his feet. Now here's a leader amongst leaders. He said, listen to me, my brothers and my people. Isn't that us right there? Listen to me, my brothers. It's the power of the word of God. Underline the phrase. I had it in my heart. John Maxwell says people buy into a man before they buy into his vision. Listen, I met a lot of smart men out there, but not many I'd follow. Let me tell you why. They're not real. Smart, make a lot of money, drive the 460. But you know what? We try best as we can as men to go, is that a real guy? Now in the business world, we really don't get that luxury a lot of times, and most of them aren't. But you get a guy like Pastor Terry and you go, he's just real. God, keep him real. <coughs> keep him real. How do you keep him real? Keep him here. Keep yourself. What do you have in your heart? David stood to his feet, and here's Solomon, the leaders, and the people. And I'll guarantee you when King David stood to his feet, the guy that kicked Goliath's butt and killed the lion, and, and the guy that ran out of adventure. Let me tell you what happens when you run out of adventure. He ran out of things to conquer, got up on the roof, and he said, I think I'd like to somebody break me off a piece of that. Bathsheba. He didn't want to screw his life up. It was another adventure. Some of you men are out there wired for adventure. That's so why I go to Alaska and get out on the sea and sail. If I, don't, if I don't do an adventure, I'll find it an adventure. So David stood up and he said, let me tell you what I have in my heart. The 29th chapter in verse 1, here's the strategy for vision. Then King David said to the whole assembly, he said, My son Solomon, whom God has chosen, he's young and inexperienced. Underline this, the task is great, 
because this palatial structure is not for man, but it is for the Lord God. You've, if you're going to be a, a man of vision, you've got to lead with the right vision. There's plenty of vision to have out there, but it doesn't mean God's going to partner with you in it. The vision God's going to partner you with is His work that's about Him, not man. He'll partner with you in work that's about His mission, His agenda, His vision, what He sees and feels and hears. I said to Pastor Terry last night, as soon as he finishes this paper, I want you guys to help me hold him accountable and let me take him to Africa. I want to take him and put him on an airplane and us flying on a dirt strip. I want to have him stay in a tuchel. I want him to watch. My son had a typhoid outbreak the other day. The UN came and grabbed all these young guys and said, come on, what are we doing? We're giving shots. These guys didn't know how to give shots. My son called me on a sat phone. He'd been eight hours sitting on a white bucket, lined up with people, didn't know who had typhoid, who didn't have typhoid. And he was watching down this long line of these Africans, men, women, and children. And the line was so long, he'd watch them just fall out and die. They'd come pick them up, drag them, put them in a pile over there. I have a picture of it. Did that for three days and three nights. I need you to let him go with me. Because here's what I know. Inside San Francisco, the only way we're going to break through is by having San Francisco realize it doesn't exist for itself. To whom much is given, much is required. My problem with San Francisco, these aren't bad people. They've just decided that what life's about is them. While a world goes to hell in more ways than we can imagine. David says, lead with the right vision. The task is great because this is a project not for man, but for the Lord God. Lead with the right vision, responsibility and sacrifice. Then verse 6, he says, this is, the leaders were going, and you guys, have the, you're the hundred, you know. Not long ago, the movie came out, I wanted to see 300. I'd seen it advertised. I'm kind of a science fiction kind of guy, and it had a kind of a blend to it and everything, you know. And It was about, the, about Sparta and the Spartans and you know, the warriors and the end and all that stuff. And I turn it on. And when you know, right at the beginning, I got a naked lady in the middle of it. <laughs> I've been telling my wife about it, you know, we get the DVD and I shove it in. And first thing I know is, is we got in the middle of everything. And I, she goes, you know, and I know this never happens to you. She says, so how many times have you seen that? That's all I'm going to say about that. <laughs> the leaders are going, what do you need us to do? Right now, you know, tomorrow morning, tonight, Terry's going to get up and he's going to close you out tomorrow morning. And he's going to be thinking tonight, I, I know us communicators, here's what he's going to be thinking. God, what do you want me to say to them? My last shot this weekend. You're the 300, you're the 100. The leader said, David, say something to us. So he said in verse 6, Then the leaders of the families, the officers of the tribes of Israel, the commanders of thousands and hundreds, etc. See, that's all the leaders. What did they do? They gave willingly. I'll tell you what we need you to do. We need you to be leaders that lead with willing hearts. The problem with people not wanting to follow leaders today is, is they are following leaders that don't lead with willing hearts. All right, he said, i got to give that dadgum offering, so I guess I do. No, keep it in your pocket. You give to God in a spirit of selfishness, 
It's not going to get you across the street to God's blessing. You know, you come home and bring your paycheck to your wife or get it electronically deposited or whatever. Rather than her bring up the need, what, here's maturity. Honey, is there anything else I can do to help in responsibility here? Last time you said that kind of stuff. David said, if you're going to lead, lead willingly as a leader. Another difference in willing and unwilling? Watching your kids take out the trash. Did you ever raise them to take the trash out with a willing heart? I've whipped them. I gave them allowances. I told them stories about their granddad. I talked about responsibility. I can promise you that still I'd say to my oldest boy, you wipe that look off your face when you take that trash out. Now, I can get them to do it, but I can't get them to do it with a willing heart. That's a mark of maturity. There was a night that I called home. I was in Pittsburgh working for John Maxwell. Snowstorm. My dad's from that area. Truck run me off into a ditch. I'm down there at the Fort Pitt Tunnel. Those of you know that area down in the ditch. My phone rings. It's my wife. Snow all over this rental car. You know, I didn't care. It's a rental car. Honey, what is it? She said, are you coming home? I said, I'm in the ditch. She said, you need to come home. She'd never done that before. So I got up on the side of the road. Highway patrol came and I said, I got to get to the airport. He said, what about the car? I said, it's a rental. I'll tell them where it's at. So I I get home. I get home and it's late, two in the morning. And uh, I said to my wife, what's up? She said, you'll need to talk to Clint, my oldest boy, the youth pastor. You talk to him in the morning. I said, are you going to tell me? Nope. So you don't much sleep much after those. So the next morning I get up. I don't know what we're dealing with, drug addiction. I don't know what it is. So I get up the next morning and, uh, and uh, I said to Clint, he came down the steps. I said, do we need to have a talk? Yes, sir, but we'll have to do it this afternoon. I said, okay. So the football day, they got their jerseys on Friday, high school football. So that afternoon, I'm there. You can bet your britches, you know, what do we got to deal with? And... Uh, Things are quiet. Clint comes in the house, comes in behind me. I'm reading the paper, getting ready for the charge, you know, and, and I hear the plastic ruffle in the trash can. Now, I got to tell you, I whipped him. I give him allowance. I told him to wipe the look off his face, get the trash out. I hear the plastic. I'm thinking, we got a problem. <laughs> out he comes with the trash. I go, man, it's bad. <laughs> My wife's in the kitchen in there. She's not saying nothing. I don't know what we have to deal with. Clint comes in. I hear the plastic again. He's putting a liner in the can. That never happens. I said, son, get in here. He comes in and sits down. Big old high school quarterback looks at me. I said, what's happened? He said, I grew up. Can you tell me what happened? He said, I was eating dinner last night with Matt, and I looked at Mom over there washing the dishes, and I thought to myself, I'm 18 years old, Dad. You've been telling me to take responsibility and wipe the look off my face and whoop my butt. But I was watching Mom wash the dishes, and it hit me. I wonder how many dishes she's washed in 18 years. I never heard Mom complain. And I was sitting there, Dad, looking at her, and I thought, time for me to grow up. So, Dad... Don't worry about the trash anymore. 
He walked out, and again, I'm not Pentecostal, but I about was Pentecostal. <laughs> and I walked in the kitchen, and there my wife was crying. Now, I would love for him to say, you know what, Dad, I've been watching you climb on airplanes and lead a church and work for John Maxwell and drive the 460, but i got to tell you something. He didn't say that. He said, I watched my mom. You guys go home after this weekend if you have a wife or you have a mom. Grow up. Because some of the greatest lessons you learn in life, you learn from her. Lead with a willing heart. And last, verse 9. This is very cool because we look at what happened with the people. The people rejoiced. You know what Pastor Terry wants when we get back? He wants the people at Cornerstone to rejoice at what happens here this weekend. You see, the people aren't going to rejoice, guys, without you. They can't. You know why we have people that don't rejoice? They don't see leaders rejoice. You know why we have boys that don't take the trash out with a willing heart? They've never seen their dad do it with a willing heart. Honey, you going to get that trash out? In the middle of the... Oh, shoot. Or worse, almost said it. The people rejoiced. Why did they rejoice? At the willing response of their leaders. How did they know that they, they gave willingly? How did the people know that the leaders re gave willingly? This is very cool right here. For they had given freely and wholeheartedly. How they knew they gave willingly was they gave freely and wholeheartedly. Freely. Nobody twisted their arms. Oh, here comes that dead gum plate again. You know, we bring our... our denominational background in. Let me throw in the dollar. <laughs> Men of responsibility and sacrifice lead freely and wholeheartedly. You know the difference in wholehearted and half-hearted? It's doing things with less than excellence. Doing your best. Honey, you put on a few pounds, huh? You ever, many of your wives ever looked back at you and said, a few pounds? You put on 40. <laughs> Correct? What is it about us as men that we don't apply the same standard we require out of everybody around us? Men of vision are men of responsibility and sacrifice. They lead with their hearts, they're real. They have the right vision, they lead with willing hearts, and they impact people with their example to give freely and wholeheartedly to the task that's at hand. In just a moment, we're going to take a break, and then we're going to have Dr. Bill Rhodes. i got to tell you something. I've met a lot of men in my journey, a lot of women, a lot of kids in my journey. I've not met anybody like Bill Rhodes yet. I want you to picture up in northern Kenya, the edge of the Great Rift Valley. There's an escarpment up there, a hole in the earth that would take your breath away. Some of you aren't old enough, but when I was a kid watching the old Johnny Miller, uh, Weissmiller uh, uh, Tarzan programs, you know, he lived on the Great Escarpment. Well, this escarpment, this valley, I forget how many hundreds of miles wide, and literally it's a, it, it makes the Grand Canyon seem like an anthill, drops straight off down into the bottom. You can't even see the bottom. 
On the edge, the northwest corner of the Great Escarpment is a place called Capsawar. You fly 23 hours to get to Nairobi. You fly from Nairobi north in a small plane, land on a dirt strip. You get in a truck and you drive four or five hours in a truck through roads that don't qualify for being roads. You break down on the side of the road, your, ultra, your clutch goes out, and you sit in a hot, sweaty field like we did for four or five hours. Finally get another truck up there, you drive another four or five hours, and you finally come to this mountain. And on the top of this mountain, where the Wycliffe translators are putting for three people groups a Bible together for the first time, is a family called the Rhodes. He's a general surgeon in a field hospital that has no hospital for people the size of about this, the area of Georgia. One hospital, one doctor, one surgeon. I'm going to pray. We're going to take a break. Then we're going to get Bill Rhodes on. It's, uh, it's uh, 1030, 1030, 1130, 1230, 130, 130 times 7. It's 830 there at night right now. He's been in surgery all day long. I got word this morning that they had a little boy that got in front of a lantern and blew on it and exploded and just burned his body. He's been doing surgery on that little boy all day long today. He's from California. I don't want to take away from any of his story. But let's pray during the break that Skype works. I want you to hear from him. He's as unusual a man as I've met in my journey. Father, thank you for our time. Give us a good break and get coffee. Help us to think about risking vision for the kingdom of God. Help us to be men of responsibility and sacrifice. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.